0: From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's forward thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush.
1: Janet, you and I have worked together for years, even before we started doing this podcast together.
2: Yeah, it's it's true. And we do this remotely. And we've actually only met each other in person, I don't know, a handful of times. So we've been remote workers for a long time.
1: And remote and hybrid work is something that today's guest has been studying, including what works and what doesn't. And I was surprised at how much remote work was going on even before the pandemic.
2: Yeah, and actually, I realized that I've been working from home remotely for 20-odd years. I worked in a farmhouse, and, and that's longer than I've been working for McKinsey. So yeah, I mean, it's very familiar to me. But I'm fascinated to know what he says about what works and what doesn't work.
1: Nicholas Bloom is the William Eberle Professor of Economics at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me on. Let's start with your background. Where
0: did you grow up? What did you study? How did you end up doing what you're doing today? Uh, (laughs) It's a bit of a random walk. It's that old thing about a random walk through Wall Street. It feels like a random walk through Korea. You can probably hear I'm British. I grew up in London. I actually never planned to be an academic. Really, I worked in this place called the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which is a fantastic think tank in London, very policy focused. Ended up doing a PhD at UCL because I was there, and then actually briefly worked in the UK Finance Ministry for a budget cycle. But worked at McKinsey for a bit, and after a while at McKinsey, I enjoyed it. But you know, it's stressful, long hours. I guess that hasn't some of that hasn't changed. But I ended up returning to academia and worked in the LSE and have been out in Stanford for now almost 20 years. Well, you've covered a lot of topics
1: in the research that you've done, but one of the things that you're very well known for is studying how the world of work has been changing, particularly various forms of remote work. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that, and hopefully we'll have some time to cover some of the other things that you've worked on as well. You know, a lot of it has happened over the past few years, particularly during the pandemic, but... You know, you started looking at this even before the pandemic started. So maybe we'll start there. You know, what were you starting to find about how
0: work was changing even before 2020? So I did a you know a couple of surveys in a large randomized control trial, and we found that work from home makes people happier. So they typically don't want to work five days a week, but most people really want to work two, three days a week from home. That's still true now, but as true as it, as it ever was. And also, if it's well-organized and well-managed, it can improve productivity. The challenge was, pre-pandemic, hardly anyone did it. So there wasn't really an ecosystem. The technology, certainly if you go back to when I first started looking on this in the early 2000s, we didn't have cloud, which enables things like Dropbox file sharing. We also didn't have you know, Zoom or Teams or anything. So it was telephone calls and emailing files and sending stuff to the mail. So it really wasn't great. So there's also the potential. I mean, Jack Niles you know, talked about this in the 70s. And actually, I, I've recently put out data. You can measure it from the American Community Survey and other census data going back to the 60s. So even in 1965, 0.4% of people said they worked from home and didn't commute. And that was growing. So that was 5% in 2019. So that's already about a 12-fold increase running up to the eve of the pandemic. But then, of course, the pandemic happened, and that was, you know, an explosion. It went from five percent to sixty percent in the space of, you know, a couple of months, and it's settled back down to thirty percent of days now. Work from home in the U.S., and it looks like that's kind of where it's ending up now. But actually, quite remarkable that that five percent figure pre-pandemic.
1: What's the denominator of that? Uh, uh, does that is that the entire workforce, or is that you know does that include all the manufacturing workers, agriculture workers, et cetera?
0: Because that's one in twenty. Yeah to give you a view of 2019 and now so in 2019 5% of full paid days in America were completely from home who was doing that about half of those days came from people that were fully remote a lot of people in call centers data processing some people like a friend of mine you know she moved from Stanford to NYU in New York and her husband kept his job at Cisco and just moved remote and then the other half of it were people who did the odd day here and there at home but you know, it was not many people. And then if you look at now, now half the workforce, to be clear, can't work from home. In fact, 55% in America do not work from home ever. They're, you know, folks in McDonald's, Chipotle, you know, in hospitals teaching, et cetera. The other half, probably most of your listeners, were full in that bucket are mainly hybrid, that's 30%, and then there's remaining 15% of the fully remote. And everyone thinks fully remote is like Airbnb. You know, when I talk to execs particularly, they're like, oh, that's elite coders. And like, yes, there are some of them, but most of that 15% is back to, you know, call centers, payments processing, HR benefits. So where does the productivity benefit come from, right? You saw, you, you saw increased
1: productivity even pre-pandemic why is that true? Because you know many of us who had the work from home experience know that there are a lot of things that can also get in the way of work when you're working from home.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So to be clear, that the the evidence and there's a few randomised control trials. I'm not going go to go through it to summarise. Are the what I call well organised hybrid? So that means, say you are doing what Zoom does, for example, you're going to come in the office Tuesday, Thursday. Everyone comes in, you have meetings, social events, presentations, trainings, there's a good reason to come in, all your face-to-face stuff is pushed into those two days. On Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you go home. So a typical firm is doing something like that with say three days in the office, normally Tuesday to Thursday, two days at home. The two benefits on productivity are A, if you look in the data on home days, Americans and in fact Europeans as well, save about 70 minutes a day from less commute, less time getting ready. And about 30 minutes of that is spent working more. So if you're in an employer and you have an employee that works from home two days a week, they work about one hour more a week for you. And in a 40-day week, that's about two and a half percent. So that's game one. I mean, you could call that productivity or more hours, depends how you count commute, but they're working more. But they're of course getting a benefit too. The employees are getting an extra 40 40 minutes a day on average they spend on childcare, leisure, whatever, other things. And then the other benefit for organised hybrid is the activities you do at home on the Monday Friday say they're quiet or deep work, so reading, writing, you know, preparing presentations, writing writing documents, you know, thinking about stuff. Maybe one on ones like Michael, me and you are having a one on one now. This actually works fine. Maybe it's even easier, you know, with this peace and quiet. It turns out that deep work or quiet work is better done in a quiet environment. And again, from our randomized control trials, you see productivity uplifts of often 2 3% per hour from QUART. So you add those two things together, you're getting something like 3 to 5% improvement in productivity. But again, to be very clear, A, this is not talking about fully remote. I'm talking about hybrid. And B, I'm talking about well-organized hybrid. So it's not the nightmare of 2021 where you're in the office, I'm at home, I'm in the office, you're at home. It's where everyone comes in on the same anchor days and everyone stays at home on the same home days. Is there a productivity boost for fully remote or not? Fully remote is very different. I've not seen studies, you know, there isn't so much of a direct study. So I'll tell you the ups and downsides of fully remote. So well-organized hybrid seems like a win-win. So just to be clear, if you're five days in the office and you go to three in the office where everyone comes in and two at home, that seems like almost all good. So the evidence is if it's well organized, there's pretty much no down, no major downsides. Fully remote has more major upsides, but starts to incur some big costs. So the two big positives for fully remote that I hear over and over again from XX is one, you save an office space, you can basically get rid of it, and that's 20, 30% of cost. That's a that's a big benefit. And secondly, you can hire at least nationally, or if not internationally, depends on the way you're set up. So you know, particularly think if you're a tech firm out in Silicon Valley, it's very expensive to hire people here. You can hire certainly across the U.S. And you know, I remember talking to one exec, and they were saying we're hiring in Nigeria, and Bulgaria, and Mexico, just globally. So those are the two benefits, and you can put numbers on them, but those are big, big numbers. You may reduce your total cost, say, by fifty percent. The Two downsides I hear a lot are one about mentoring, so mentoring is something that's very much better done in person, and the fact that it's hard to mentor also will make it harder to recruit. So if you look at 20 to 29-year-olds, they have a very strong preference for having at least two, three days a week on site. So if you're strategically as a company, if you want to hire people like my students from Stanford. It's not that appealing being fully remote. So, the mentoring thing means you mentor less, but you're also going to struggle to hire people under the age of 30 because typically they're not the ones that want fully remote jobs. The other cost is around creativity. So, you know, that there's some pretty good research in that showing that you certainly can be creative when you're in a remote team, but it's harder. So, you know, there's a piece in nature a few months ago. It was a kind of somewhat staged experiment, but they randomized whether teams were in person or remote to come up with ideas for some products they randomly gave given them. And then they assessed it with some, you know, separate panels and found, look, people that are discussing things like that in person tend to have better outcomes than people that are remotely. And again, I don't think anyone's going to be that surprised by that finding two years into the pandemic.
1: But creativity, that, that is, for some
0: reason, being in person sparks more ideas or better ideas. You know, so many different people from very junior to senior across. It's not just firms like the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, the British government. I mean, you know, my local city council, my hospital, all of them say the same thing that it's just easier to have some of these problem solving meetings or creative things in person. Partly because some of this stuff actually happens at the beginning of the end of the meeting or people are walking out. Partly maybe it's more relaxed. You take your time a bit more on it. People also paying attention. You know, I I notice it with students in particular, anyone that wears glasses on a, you know, a Zoom or a team school, I often see the colors on their glasses changing. I'm like, you're watching Netflix. You know, you're so not paying attention. You're doing an email. You can see people's eyes are looking. So that's the problem. You have a problem-solving meeting with eight people and three of them are doing email. And so not surprisingly, their contribution's not as good. So yes, the evidence is there's a few different pieces of research on that. Creativity seems to be better in person. And why, you know, just personally, when, in research seminars and academic economists, we just, they a lot better in person because everyone's in the room, they're focused, they're having a discussion on Zoom. It feels like reduced bandwidth, you know, you've no idea. You have a bunch of faces that are there. Some of them have the screens turned off, the cameras off. So yeah, creativity is the thing that a lot of people bemoaned actually, particularly in 2020 when you're fully remote, that it was hard to come up with new ideas. Are there other characteristics of the meetings that are better done in person? If you look at really fully remote companies, so think of folks like Upwork, Automatic, Quora, you know, these are companies I've spoken to a chunk about stuff. They do meet up in person every so often. So normally what they'll do is meet up for, let's say, a week every other month to try and build some connection. So fully remote is not normally completely you never meet the person. It generally means on a day-to-day your meeting remotely. In terms of meetings, I think one-on-one meetings like Michael, if you and I have been in the office yesterday and were, you know, on, on Zoom or Teams today, it probably doesn't matter that much. You know, we have this connection. It's particularly if we're sharing documents, it may even be better to meet online because you can both look at a doc. You know, I'm kind of short sighted, so I can peer at it very closely into the laptop without invading someone else's space and fiddle around with it. On the other hand, big meetings where there's You know, I I have some survey data on this, but larger meetings, particularly 10 plus, they're not enormous. So they're, you know, 10 to 50. Like town halls with 2,000 people, obviously, it's very hard to do this in person. But if it's 10, 20 person meeting, they seem to be better in person, partly because everyone's just forced to pay attention. In a 20 person meeting, most of the time people aren't speaking, they're listening. And it's more of a shared experience and people are focused. It does mean that you should keep them short. So to be clear, online, you see people spend more time in meetings. On the other hand, they're not really fully there. I mean, they're doing email and other work. In person, it is it is costly to have a 20-person meeting in person, but you want to limit these things. But it seems like everyone's attention is kind of efficient in that sense.
1: Although sometimes you see some meetings, and clearly people are still doing email despite the being in person as well. So that yes. happens too. <laughs>
0: It's amazing in tech, the norms vary a lot across industry, that I've been to, presented at conferences in, in in tech world, and everyone's on their laptop, and, you know, it is what it is. If you can't grab their attention, you know they're coding or doing email or something else.
1: Indeed. I mean, I was once in a, doing a presentation at a tech company, and I actually thought everyone was doing their email because it was early in the morning. It turns out that they were actually discussing the topic that that, no. that we were talking about, so that it turns out it wasn't as negative as I, I thought at the time. You know, there's an old saw about you know, remote is good for maintaining relationships, but in order to start a new relationship that's trust based, you need to be in person. I've heard people say during the pandemic that's been challenged a bit. That in fact, people have been able to start trust based relationships on a, on a remote
0: basis. Any reflections on that? Has that changed? No, I so I I agree with it. I haven't heard hard data on it, but again, I've heard this over and over again. Just as another great example, Stanford has this very elite exec ed program for directors of company. These are very senior people, a bunch of them are CEOs of companies you've even heard of, you know, very, very senior. And I gave a session and it was a fascinating discussion about board meetings and folks saying, look, you really want remote, you know, board meetings are there four times a year or six times a year. You can have one or two of them remote, but you certainly want enough, a regular cadence of in-person meetings, particularly the first time you join, because you really get that sense of connection and building trust, as you say and I don't know, you could say revolved over 2 billion years if you go back, whatever, to the first single-celled organisms. But certainly, humans as we currently exist, you know, tens of thousands of years old. And I think we're just set up and you know, our hardware and software and the way you think about us is about in-person interactions. And I personally find it easier to certainly connect to people in person. I have a number of co-authors that I started working with on work-from-home topics during the pandemic. And some of them, I, a bunch of them I met, we had a recent remote work conference. and It was really nice. To meet a bunch of my co-authors. And I do feel more connected. You know, you've met them for the first time and you have lunch with them and you chat about stuff, just different things. So, yes, I don't think again, it's why hybrid has become so dominant. I don't think you need to be fully in person, but even if you know you're remote, you still need some points of contact. And coming back to it, if you look at just about every company I've spoken to that hires graduates, so professionals, managers, the company, basically your listener group. Even if they're fully remote, they still try to meet up every other month. They say, like, we're going to meet in Albuquerque or Barcelona or something for a four-day you know, offsite retreat. We're going to use it mainly for work, but we're also going to use it, to be honest, to, to bond people and build culture. So you've mentioned several times for this type of hybrid work that it's important that it's well-organized. What are the characteristics of being well-organized? One, people are in on the same days. So The reason if you survey people, again, we've been surveying, I have something called the Server of Workplace Attitudes and Arrangements Sway. We survey 10,000 people a month. We've been doing this for over two years. So, you know, we've, whatever, talked to 100,000, 200,000 people. If you ask them, why do you want to come into the office? What are the benefits? Numbers one and two, by a long margin are A, co-working face to face with other people and be socializing. So people, you know, one of the options is to spend time with my manager and I can assure you that doesn't get much hits or to you know use the equipment or the free bagel or the ping pong table, whatever it is. If people are coming in for three days a week and they're spending one of those days sat in the office quietly working, let them work from home. So it's kind of, you know, the, the function meets purpose here. So those two, once you get it right, I know quite a lot of organisations have done that. Generally, the employees are quite happy. They see real purpose in coming in. They find it's beneficial. It's social. It's social, it, it helps them, and then they get to benefit two, three days a week from home.
1: Do you get the real estate benefits though? I guess you still need those,
0: <laughs> the the same amount of space. It's just utilised less. Yeah. So, real estate. Before twenty, before the pandemic, when I talked to folks about work from home, they're always focused on real estate as the big benefit. That was really where the savings. Post-pandemic is actually the last of the four benefits. So if I go through the four benefits, number one by far is keeping employees happy. The numbers I can put in it are typically, if you let people work from home two days a week, they value it at about an 8% pay increase, which is an enormous amount of money. So just to context that, in the US right now, the employment cost index is going up by about 7% a year. So if you're listening as an employer, you have to have a pay increase of about 7% just to tread water. If you then want to say, I'm going to force everyone back into the office full time and your rivals are letting them work hybrid, you need to throw on top of that an extra 8% to keep them whole. So that's a 15% pay increase. Nobody is doing that. Therefore, that's why hybrid has become dominant. It's, a be- it's you know it's the-, the most cost-effective way to retain and recruit staff. Number two is productivity. We talked about that. These numbers aren't huge, but they're maybe 3 to 5%. Number three is on diversity, so I won't spend too long on it, but if you look at who's most keen to work from home at least one, two days a week, it tends to be minorities in the workplace. To be clear, it's by it's not just you know, people immediately think of race and gender, which is true. but interesting, it's also by age, by political preference, by religion. So we survey folks, and if you have less than 10 percent of your co-workers in that cell, you say, I feel slightly less comfortable coming in. Like, I'm, I'll be 50 next year. and Then my office was full of 20-year-olds talking about TikTok. I'd be like, <laughs> you know, maybe this isn't, I don't feel that comfortable coming in. I, I don't want to come in every day of the week. And it's true for minorities across multiple dimensions. And what it tells you is if you get tough and force folks in five days a week, you can imagine who's most likely to quit. And that's costly for DI. And then finally, space. Just to pause on that one for a moment, we've heard from a, a, a another podcast guest about this critical
1: mass idea that you, you need a certain amount of people with your identity, gender, or what have you, in order to feel comfortable. You know, we, you, you mentioned it at ten percent.
0: Does that number change when you're remote? Is that what you're suggesting? A the ten percent. To be honest, we just. I, I'm not. I'm definitely not an expert on this. I picked the ten percent because we we literally put in a survey question. We asked people. Are more or less than 10% of your co-workers the same, you know, gender, age, race, religion and politics? Then we ask people subsequent questions and how comfortable do you feel coming in? What would you do if your employer forced you to work from home? What you see is people that are in minorities are less comfortable coming in and more keen on work from home. It also tells you, by the way, that you risk a bit of a downward spiral, because what happens is if you start to lose, you know, diverse employees, it makes those to the left feel less comfortable because, you know, they're more outliers. So there is a real stability thing, and I, it's one when I talk to firms, it's one of the clearly important factors that, particularly folks in tech and finance that are struggling with this, or some business services, they're like, look, if we're very tough and force people back to the office, some of the senior managers want that, but it's going to come with a massive cost in terms of loss of diversity, and you know, it, so that that was factor three. I was going to end on space. Space is you know the biggest disappointment. So every you know exec is. So it's kind of frustrated with their space folks saying, why can't you cut space? And as you know, and everyone's kind of figured out, is of course, if people are coming in on Tuesday to Thursday, you can't do it. Now, there are solutions. There are kind of clever software solutions. And I think that's where we're going to be 23, 24 onwards. But to be clear, what it needs is that you do what we do for like university lecture halls, which is we rotate. So you need to tell team A, look, you guys are going to come in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Team B, your Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Team C, et cetera. And the cost of that, A, you've, you know, people have to come in on Monday, Fridays, they don't like it. B, they're not in on the same day. So if Team A and B want to work together, there's less overlap. There's also another issue about clean desks. You can't leave stuff out on your desk. There's, there's a number of complexities. Now, I don't think they're insoluble by any means, but it is complicated. And so most managers I speak to are saying, <laughs> This hybrid, it, you know, it's hard enough. It's so complicated getting this thing right. And there's so many different views. And some people want to be fully remote and some fully in-person. I'm just focusing on getting this thing nailed down. I just don't want to deal with the space headache as well. And in fact, a few companies I've spoken to cut space in 2020 and 2021 and are now telling me they are struggling to get people back. And in fact, it's become a real pain for management because they're like, we want to get people back to a normal hybrid 3-2 plan, but we don't have enough desks. And we're thinking about taking on more space, or shrinking, or repurposing, etc. You know, you mentioned the 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 Swede data set, the survey that you've
1: been conducting, which is an amazing data set. I, I, I've also seen that you've expanded that to a, a, a global survey as well. How are you seeing things vary by region,
0: or is it the same all around the world? Yes, yeah, so again, really interesting question. So, North America, so Canada, the US, look pretty similar, pretty high levels. Northern Europe. Is the same. As you go into southern Europe, work from home levels are lower. Australia, New Zealand, what I call developed Asia. So think of you know Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, etc., lower, you know, India, China, all of these places are lower, but their increase as proportionate increase has been pretty similar. So in the US, you've maybe gone from five to thirty percent of full-paid days work from home. In Africa, it's maybe gone from more like you know, two to ten percent, but it's still a very large increase. So around the world we see big jumps up the reason that the levels are particularly high in america is a combination of a industrial structure so it tends to be you know professional services tech finance is more amenable to this you know manufacturing agriculture is harder b infrastructure so in a lot of asian cities like think of tokyo or shanghai people don't You know, so expensive they live in small apartments and it's not so appealing, particularly for a couple to work from home. And then see in some countries, I remember talking to a multinational of folks in Indonesia, they said, you know, in some of the areas in the smaller towns and you know, cities, there just isn't a good enough connectivity to connect to support, you know, Zoom. It's not email's fine, but for to have video calls is not just high average speed, you actually need, it never drops below about five megabits per second, otherwise you disconnect. And so in some of these places, it's fast and then flakes out and then fast, and it just makes it very hard to connect properly. That makes sense in terms of how things are evolving in different places.
1: Another piece of data that came out of your research with the survey is a little bit around maybe a mismatch in expectations some of our mgi colleagues have looked you know at what's possible right so taking some of the bureau of labor statistics breakdowns of different occupations and trying to assess which activities have the potential of being done remotely at roughly the same productivity and, and it estimates that over 20% of workers could work remotely at least 3 days per week but some of your survey research compares what workers would like in terms of you know number of days remote and what employers would like and you know you mentioned for instance that that employees actually value the potential you know, what were those findings, and
0: what are your reflections on maybe a bit of that mismatch? Let's break employees down into two groups. So there's that roughly half of the population in you know, the US and most of Europe which can work from home. So again, it's professionals, managers. For that group, on average, they want to work from home two and a half days a week. There's a big spread, though. So about 30% want to be fully remote. You should think of you know, 30, 40-somethings with young kids. There's about 15% that want to be fully in person, actually. They tend to be 20s. And, you know, they want to get mentoring, they want to go socialize. They have small apartments. They don't want to spend much time in them. But there's there's a big variation, but the average is two and a half days. If we ask their employers what they're planning for this group, in 2020 it was about one day. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of, you know, discussion of employees saying, we like this, it's really great. And employers saying, well, don't get used to it. You know, you're know, you coming back. Once this thing is over, you're back. By 2022, that gap's gone. So month by month, what employers have been telling us has been going up and up and up. So for the half of the population that's professionals and managers, both sides are on about two and a half days a week. Now, it still means there's a lot of griping. If you look at Apple, they're letting employees work from home two and a half days a week. That's kind of what the average person wants. But remember, 30% of Apple... Employees based on our survey data probably want fully remote. There's 150,000 employees in Apple. That's you know almost 50,000 people. Not surprisingly, a bunch of them are signing petitions. So the fact that you're offering the average doesn't mean that you know everyone's happy. the The bigger group that in some ways is harder is the other 50% that can't work remotely. They want less, but still. In our survey, we asked them the question: How many days would you want to work from home? And you know it's hard to interpret it slightly. If you work in McDonald's and you say you want to work from home, quite how interpret to interpret it but they're giving us numbers about one and a half days a week and they're getting basically zero so in some senses that's the biggest gap because that group is very hard for them to work from home at all but they are quite like to you know you also characterize some of that 50 percent
1: as being higher wage workers let's describe managers professionals etc and i think that's that's easy for us to conceive of but you know earlier on you also mentioned there are a number of lower wage occupations which are also done, in some cases fully remotely, say a contact center work, for instance. How has that evolved, if any, as we think about, you know, not just the highest wage workers in the economy, but some of the lower wage occupations
0: which end up being remote? Yeah, so you know, to be clear, there's every which way. For example, some of the most paid people out there, think of traders in so I don't know, Goldman Sachs. These feet, folks basically have to be in the office because the equipment and the speed of connectivity or you know, brain surgeons, or you know, elite surgeons, they or heart surgeons, these folks, or airline—I mean, pilots. No one would be happy to be told as you board your plane that your pilot is working remotely from his living room in Ohio. He'd be like, "I'm sorry, I'm getting off right here and now." So, there are a number of elite jobs that are have to be in person. But you're um, correct that you know, if you look at people that are fully remote, they don't tend to be apart from Airbnb and a few big tech or smaller startup firms a lot of them are you know, call centers, payroll processing, HR benefits. The thing that if I were those employees that makes it slightly nervous, in some senses, it's great that they can do that because you know, at Stanford, for example, some of these people are no longer in California, they're moving to other parts of the US. And it's good because we're providing employment across the country and spreading it a bit out from the Bay Area. But a number of companies I talked to are saying in the longer run, we're thinking about why they even have to be in the US. And Currently, because we're short of labour supply in the U.S., it's a good thing if we can effectively use you know labour supply from other countries, if folks in I don't know Mexico or Chile or whatever are working as you know payments processing for American companies. Of course, in the longer run, as we know, you know from the whole China World Trade debate, you know there could be some political ramifications of it. But for businesses, there is an enormous opportunity in terms of outsourcing and offshoring. And I hear a lot of companies saying. The pandemic made me realize there are parts of my business that don't really need to be, you know, they don't need to be my employees. Why does IT support, if it's you know front line and it's done entirely remotely and has been for two years, maybe there are you know better firms that could do this at scale. They don't necessarily need to be in the U.S. I mean, there are various confidentiality and other positional issues, but I think in the next five years we're going to see a, a big increase in service sector trade, service sector globalization driven by this. You know, one other thing you mentioned. Uh- You know, we're both based in the San Francisco
1: Bay Area. There's a lot of tech going around here. Metaverse is a term that comes up all the time. You'd mentioned that remote, you know, the sort of the the channels of bandwidth for communication are more constrained than in person. Is there a potential that, you know, we put on the goggles and we can see in 3D and maybe we have legs, maybe we don't. But does that
0: change what's possible or what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So... Another thing that's really striking is the role of technology, not so much in the short run, but definitely in the long run. So I've been working and working from home for 20 years. When I first started working, it was you know doing stuff over free com, phoning people up, emailing files. It was not great. You know it was really honestly not that good. About 10 years ago, you know looking at 2012, 2013, the cloud and things like Zoom and Teams or as forerunner, you know Skype for Business, really started to take off. And that meant that you could work much more effectively. So technology has really saved us now. I have another project where we scrape the patents that come out of the US Patent and Trademark Office. There are about 20,000 a month. And we scrape them for words like remote work, working from home, et cetera. That was about half a percent running up to the pandemic. It's started to rise pretty sharply. And it's gone above 1% now and it's heading rapidly up. And so the reason I think it's really positive is like every hardware and software firm out there has said, look, the number of people working from home in America, the number of days has gone up five, six fold. That's that five to 30% number. That's a much bigger market. We should pour a ton of R&D dollars into it. A lot of startups are entering. So the rate of technological progress is really going to pick up. What that technology is, is harder to call. I, you know, To give you an anecdote, I heard an interview with the founder of Dropbox about a year ago. He was saying, look, when I founded it, Maybe it was, I think, 20, 2009. Only techies had more than one laptop, but it's turned out that that kind of technology has been invaluable for file sharing and box and everything that's come after it. So I think currently now there's a lot of technology, as you say, maybe metaverse, maybe holograms, virtual reality, you know, better screens. For example, cameras all over the screen. Right now, all of these cameras are at the top of the laptop screen and you don't really have eye contact. You can imagine miniaturizing them, bearing them into the screen. This kind of stuff will make remote work more appealing. So, st- 3 certainly 5 for sure 10 years from now the technology will be substantially better and it will mean it's not that we're going to go fully remote but at the margin you know we may creep from 2 to 3 days a week more professions may go remote another example is that my one of my neighbors is a doctor and she said pre pandemic 5 days a week in you know seeing patients in, in, you know in the hospital now she has one day a week of remote visitations for people that want you know repeat prescriptions or test back or a lot of, you know, some patients would rather that. And so that's the sense in which I think technology's facilitated that. She wouldn't have done it over the phone, but now because of regulatory changes and because you can do it over a secure video link, that's now become possible. Certainly changed the game in terms of telemedicine
1: there. One other thing I want to pull on too is we've been talking about hybrid with a particular lens, which is a bit sort of the organizational lens, where sometimes people are remote, sometimes people are come together in person. But there's another way to use the term hybrid, which is, for instance, in a meeting where you have some people in person and some people remote. I think a lot of organizations have found that to be particularly difficult. I mean, part of it has to do with hardware, as you just mentioned. Uh, Any reflections on some of those challenges you know, how do you make sure that people who aren't in person can participate in the same kinds of ways, et cetera, and what the future might
0: be for, for that type of hybrid? Yeah, so a few points here. You're right, particularly given technology and hardware that exists. We have to be realistic about where we are in 22. I mean, every, not every company is dramath- dramatically overhauling their meeting rooms. That's not ideal. So, yes, it's best avoided if possible. So, one of the things, if you're, you know, for example, I I work with Lazards, one of the big investment banks, and they try and be fully in person Tuesday to Thursday internationally and remote Monday, Friday. That means if you're going to have a meeting with five people across five different offices, it makes sense to do it on a Monday and Friday. Everyone's, you know, they're at home anyway, you're on an equal playing field, it's easier to do it. If, on the other hand, you want to have, you know, 10 people from two different offices, it's maybe hard to get around it. And you have to take a call whether you want 20 small screens or you know two people on a Tuesday where there's 10 in one room and a big screen and 10 in another. And it's not ideal. So partly planning to think about the best days for these cross-branch international meetings. Partly if you have a lot of these trying to make sure that globally as an organization, you have harmonized you know, in-person days and harmonized at home days. And partly in the long run, I think technologies going to play an important role at making this easier. So three to five years, I mean, one one example is not just hardware, software. So if you watch a football match on TV, and there's like 10, 15 cameras in the stadium, and they rotate between them to get a great view, and you really feel like you're there and you're you know, in the action. For a lot of meetings, there's one camera, and that one camera is at a weird angle, and you know, person X is speaking, and you can see his or her ear or part of their neck, or you know their leg, and that's like it. And it feels so disconnected. And so One of the things is getting more cameras. Another is just using AI to try and make sure the cameras and focusing on the person that's speaking using, you know, directional sound. There's a bunch of things that isn't there now, but I think five, seven years will be. I mean, it's it's starting. Some of these devices try and focus, but then you know they're far from perfect. But I think in a few years from now, because the market's so big, I mean, every company's spending on this. So if you get it right, you're on a jackpot. And so I think this is going to improve a lot. I, I think of work from home. Is kind of like a Nike swoosh. We're kind of at a low point now. It may drop a little bit if we get hit by a recession. But in the long run, I'm thinking three, certainly five years out is going to pick up and it's going to be higher than it is now. So if I was planning for buildings, hiring strategy, five, 10 years out, you should actually be thinking of higher levels of remote work then than they are now, not lower. And that affects everything from office space to who you hire, because different demographics have different preferences, your products, your strategies, your locations, et cetera. A lot to think about.
1: You know, as, as, as much of work as you've done on this idea of the work and, and the workplace, you also do other research. You also uh, co-authored a paper entitled, Are Good Ideas Getting Harder to Find? Actually, one of our other guests mentioned it. What's going on there? It sounds a bit scary. Yes.
0: Yeah, so You can either be positive or negative on this. So just to explain, we show from the 60s or 50s till now, the rate of productivity growth and the development of what I call new ideas has been slowly declining. So productivity growth is falling. And at the same time, the amount we're spending on science, R&D professionals, you know, and money by firms by the government has actually been rising. So it looks like it's getting harder and harder to come up with new ideas. And Moore's Law is a good example. So for many years, you know, the speed of these chips was doubling between every 18 and 24 months. And you think, well, look, progress is steady. But if you looked at it, the amount of money spent on improving those chips, the size of the research teams was itself rapidly increasing. So it was, you know, in the 70s, it was 8, 10, 12 people teams were doing this. And, you know, there are thousands and thousands of scientists doing this. So it seems pretty clear. And, you know, the paper goes through a lot of different areas from, you know, cancer treatment to heart disease to agriculture, et cetera, whereby you see more resources going in. But progress is either flat or slowing. So, in some ways, you could take this as very negative. I don't think it's so negative in the bigger sweep of history. So, to give you that long sweep of, of history, your productivity growth, we have better data for the UK, but if you go back, there's data going back like over 2000 years was very, very low. It was like below 0.1% per year. People in, you know, England in 1700 were not dramatically richer than people in, a, you know, zero AD, and that was an enormous sweep of time. You then see the Industrial Revolution starts, growth starts to pick up, starts to accelerate. It peaks in about 1950. So 1950 is kind of the heyday of universities get smart, they start to focus on research. all the companies have R and D labs. America, particularly, but to some extent, Europe becomes more focused on, you know, being a Kind of being progressive and trying to, you know, do research and focusing on science, we're now falling off that high, but we're still growing at one percent per year. It's just not the three percent in the fifties. So you could be negative and saying ideas are harder to find. Yes, that's true, but we're benchmarking ourselves against the best period in human history. We're still making progress. It's just at a slower rate than in the eighties and a much slower rate in the fifties. You know, you can read this. You know, if you're an exec out there or a company. I think the last 10 years, 15 years are probably a good prediction for what's going to happen for the next 10, 15 years. I don't think there's going to be some tech-induced explosion in growth. We keep being promised that. It just has yet to happen. On the other hand, growth has not collapsed to zero. You know, We're growing at about productivity growth, about 1% a year. And I guess that was what we'll maintain for the next 10, 15 years. Forecasting beyond that is, you know, is, I'd say in, in British English, I would, what we call a mugs game I just I, you know I wouldn't feel confident forecasting more than 10, 15 years out. Even that comes with some uncertainty. But given there's only been two changes over the last what 200 years in rate of progress, you know, I think it's reasonably safe to say we're making steady, slow, reasonable productivity growth. It's not zero, but it's certainly harder. It's like a mine. You know, there's still plenty of coal down there or gold or whatever you're mining, but you know, you're having to go further and further into the mine to get this stuff out. But you never know, all rockful, you know, a wall may break out and there's an enormous scene. It's you know, it could be the singularity point happens or some exciting thing. I just being an empiricist, looking at history, it predicts we'll have slow but steady growth for the next few years. Some people are more hopeful, but I understand where, where you're coming from. All right, if you don't
1: mind, let's do a quick lightning round of some quick questions, quick answers. Sure, I try my best to be fast,
0: yes. All right, what's your favorite source of information about workers? The media. I you know, I read the BBC, Economist, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, FT. You know, I try and read pretty much all of them, but I think there's five. I love that. You know, I, it, Pretty much that informs me every day. What's the one thing about workers you'd most like to measure but haven't figured out how to yet? Expectations. This great data on what people are doing, what they did in the past, what they get, what they're earning. is much harder to get people's expectations, maybe even their prejudices. We've been trying to collect that in sway in the survey, asking people, what do you think? What are your feelings on X? How would you behave? How would you change your behavior if this happened? That's much harder to get. And you have to come up with survey questions that elicit a good answer, but are easy to understand. What's the most surprising finding you've discovered about how work has evolved over the past few years? I mean, maybe that work from home works. I didn't even believe fully my own research. When I, mean, I had a a paper called How Working From Home Works Out, you know, I had some papers going back to you know the the 10 years pre-pandemic on how, how positive it was. It was very positive. I just thought, you know, it worked in this one incidence, it's not gonna work in aggregate. As we've seen post-2020, it's turned out to be much better than pretty much anyone thought, including me. I mean, if I wasn't positive on here, it, it's hard to think who was, you know, positive enough. But it's very few people, a few, you know, insightful companies like Automatic or Upwork or, you know, etc., that were fully remote even pre-pandemic. But it's hard. It's hard to find folks beyond that. What's the most surprising occupation that is amenable toward remote work? I was told a story about street cleaning, and I don't know whether this is an apocryphal story or not. Somebody told me, and I'm not sure this is development. You can, I'll tell you the story, and you can see how it could work in the long run. That. A company has developed these robots and they are little cameras inside the robots and they go around and they clean streets, but there's an exception. They go back to a uh, some kind of HQ and they check out what's going on. And so one former street street cleaner can now be an, a, an office-based street cleaner in charge of five, six robots. So you think of their is way up there. I mean, probably each of those robots isn't quite as good as a human, but certainly they're better than a fifth of a human and there's five of them. So if you can do that, you know, we were talk- I had a call earlier today actually with Steve Davis who was talking about deep sea oil exploration. So there used to be these folks that would go down and they had to be there and looking at the camera feeds and the drilling stuff and actually measuring it. As soon as the pandemic happened, they couldn't leave and they're actually doing it from their living rooms. And again, it wasn't as good as in person. But look, if, if you're an oil exploration person, it takes you a week to travel somewhere and you're only 20% more productive. Maybe it makes sense to do this stuff remotely. What does your perfect office setup look like? physically comfortable not too big you know a meeting room that you can meet one or two students or visitors i spend a lot of time talking to students advising them the other thing is you have got to have a you know we're now all hybrid even in our office in the sense that i have a lot of zoom calls teams whatever and so you want a nice camera and that good microphone in the background actually in my office I, I my office is pretty much a mess at stanford i'm taking this from home but my home is much tidier so i could only find one wall that looked okay. It has a picture of Glasgow in it where my wife was from when I got married. So often cool to start off with, you know, why is there a picture of Glasgow behind you? And then I explain, but that works well. You just need one of your walls to look reasonable. And of course, it has to be facing the light. So, you know, it can't be, it can't be the window because you're like this silhouette from, uh, you know, one of those good cop, bad cop investigations.
1: Where in the world would you most like to re- do remote work from?
0: Maybe Greece. My father-in-law lives there. My, you know, my father and my, my stepmother-in-law live there, and it's fantastic. They live in a on the coast in a quiet part of Greece. It's really lovely. We go there every summer. Very nice, very civilized, great food, lovely climate. It's not that dissimilar to California. I mean, to be honest, I'm aware that I'm very lucky living in California. It's a lovely place to be because you've got some outside space. And actually, one of my students, she just sent me something today on what's called digital nomads, people who have gone fully remote. She's interviewing a lot of them in Mexico, and there's fantastic quotes from people saying stuff like, in the pandemic, I decided I want to learn to surf. So, you know, they're coders. They basically moved to Mexican surf towns and just did everything remote for a year and learned to surf or run a DJ business. And, I, you know I, know, I know I'm never going to make enough money to live off it, so I'm still coding in the day on Java. So, you know, that there are other places like Thailand, Mexico, et cetera.
1: If you weren't doing what you're doing today professionally, what would you be doing?
0: You know, I enjoyed my time at McKinsey. I also worked at the UK Treasury, it was good. I did, you know, I worked at the RFS. I've had some related but not the same careers before, and I enjoyed them. Maybe one of them. I had, a, as I mentioned at the beginning, a very random reason I ended up in academia. And, you know, they also were very appealing careers, and I enjoyed them a lot. I mean, in the UK Treasury, I mean, you can imagine right now, it would be pretty scary but also fascinating place to be. And if you had one piece of advice for our listeners of this podcast, what would it be? I guess everyone that's listened this far is focused on remote work. And my piece of advice would be to make this work. You know, There's a lot of scare stories in the media saying hybrid doesn't work. Mainly it's because either they get confused and are talking about fully remote, or they're talking about disorganized hybrid. And so my one piece of advice is just be intentional, be organized. Basically, get folks in on two, three days a week of what I call anchor days and... Be really tough about having them come in and then let them work from home on the other days. And then on their home days, give them what I call performance management. So, say, like, you know, Michael, if you're my boss, Nick, I want you to get this stuff done. So, you're measuring my output rather than micromanaging what I do minute by minute. Because in another study, we see that people on work from home days, they work about an hour or two less on those days. And when you ask them what's going on, they say, look, I'm going to the you know the gym, picking my kids up, going to the dentist, but they make up for it on other days. So interestingly enough, work you know hybrid work from home workers work about the same as, if not slightly more per week. But on the Wednesdays and Fridays they're at home or two Mondays and Fridays, these are great days to go to the dentist, have a round of golf. Be smart about hybrid work from home. I think it can work really well and lots of data shows it can, but it has to be well managed. It doesn't just naturally, randomly happen that way. Nicholas Bloom, thanks for joining us. Michael, thanks so much for having me on. It's a lot of fun.
2: Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com forward slash MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. If you like this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Forward Thinking is hosted by Michael Chewy and me, Janet Bush. Our audio engineer is Colin Warren.
0: The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services,
1: or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.